Let's, let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for today. We give you thanks for the love and the grace that you have shown us. We pray now, Father, during these few moments together that you open up your word so we may hear um, a word for us tonight so that we may grow closer to you and closer to one another. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We go on with the, uh, with the next two Beatitudes. Well, uh, two weeks ago, we took spring break off. Uh, two weeks ago, we did Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit, and we did Blessed Are Those Who Mourn, and we went through that whole thing, and since it was two weeks ago, we'll have to do a little review on, on Beatitudes. For those of you who aren't here, you may learn something, you may not. Um, as I shared with you then, I'll share with you again, I look at the Beatitudes different than what most of you look at them. I understand them differently than what most preachers preach them. Uh, I'm not right. I'm not wrong. They're not right. They're not wrong. Different understanding and a different background. And, and, and probably, um, in some ways, maybe even a different understanding of the gospel. Because... Um, I don't look at the Beatitudes, at, and you're going to hear this every week just about, as requirements. The, first, the Beatitudes are not requirements. Jesus does not say, in order to be blessed, you must be poor in spirit. You must be mourning. You must be meek. You must hunger for thirst and righteousness. That's what he says. They are not a, a directions for better living. They are... Um, well, I heard one preacher say that, uh, told the congregation that unless they live these beatitudes, unless they are meek, unless they are mourning, unless they are poor in spirit, as ever this preacher described it, they will not experience the kingdom of God. And I have some real problems with that uh, because if that's true, and if the beatitudes are really the first teachings of Jesus that we have, um, in Matthew's gospel, then Jesus starts off with a theology of works righteousness and not a theology of grace. And I just can't imagine that Jesus would say, this is what you must do to enter the kingdom of God. Because my understanding of Jesus is, is grace. Um, then I've heard other preachers and teachers say that the Beatitudes are simply a a way that you ought to strive to live, that they're unattainable, right? Anybody ever hear that one? That's my favorite, because that would just make Jesus mean. I mean, right? Okay, I'm going to tell you this, even though I know you can't live it, but I'm just going to dangle a carrot in front of you, and you're never going to get it, but you're going to kill yourself trying to get it. It's just, that's not who Jesus is, I don't think. What I see the Beatitudes are, and I've shared this, they are announcements. They are an announcement to, by Jesus to kick off his ministry. And he is very clear that they are words of grace. And these words of grace not only set up the preaching that Jesus will do for the rest of his earthly ministry, it also will explain why he hung around with the people he hung around with during his earthly ministry. Because that's what hacked off a lot of the religious leaders, because he was hanging around the wrong people. So um, it's about grace. It is not the if-then game. If you are meek, then you will. It's not what he says. It's not what he says in Aramaic. It's not what Matthew records in Greek. It's not what is in Hebrew. It is not what is in any English translation that is a true translation. Um, we talked about before the, uh, the crowd. Remember the crowd? They came from the Decapolis, which were the Greeks, where they were Gentiles. They came from the Holy Land, Jews. They were rich, poor, slave, free, religious, non-religious. They were a what I like to call... Uh, a mishmash of people. But they generally, for the most part, were not the best of the best of the best. He was speaking to people who basically were living on the margins, who were uh, not part of the group, who were on the fringe, 
who were being denounced by religious leaders, uh, who were basically those people. And so Jesus sets up a new way of looking at things. And that's why I think this, I th- that's why I've said from the very beginning that the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most revolutionary sermons ever preached because it turns the world upside down. Bottom line. Um, Kurt Vonnegut said, and I love this quote, and I've used it, that uh, he's never heard anyone complain that the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are not posted in a courtroom. Courtroom. You know, it's all the fluff over Ten Commandments being in the courtroom. My question, I agree with Kurt, why aren't the Sermon on the Mounts posted? Why isn't the Beatitudes posted? Because those are the gospel of Jesus. That's the proclamation message, my opinion. Um, okay, so we are going to go. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is the NIV, because the Common English Bible blows it. Again, the Common English Bible uses the word happy for, um, for blessed, and they say, and I already turned it, and they say that happy are people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. That is a, my opinion, horrible translation. We'll use the word meek. So if I asked you to define meek, give me a definition. And I have to repeat your definition because people didn't like that they couldn't hear the conversation on the podcast. So anybody have a definition of meek? Meek, anyone, 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 anyone? Bueller? Afraid of your own shadow? Huh? Mousy? Weak? Okay, now, here is what Webster defines meek as. Common English says humble. The Webster says someone who endures injury with patience and without resentment. Now, those are fine definitions. They're probably great definitions. But I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I think Jesus was talking about something more. Because we have to remember that the first four Beatitudes are descriptions, not prescriptions. That's key to understanding, especially the first four. He, as I said, he is not giving us things to adopt, right? He's not telling us we should be mousy or we should be weak or we shall be uh, uh, afraid of our own shadow or we should be uh, someone who endures injury with patience. and with That, that would not go well. That, that's not what Jesus is going to say to a bunch of losers who have gathered to hear him preach on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not what he's going to, because they would say, yeah, and? We're already that. So Jesus has to be saying something else. Now, I happen to think, as I've said, that Jesus was not the most original preacher um, to walk the earth. In fact, most of what Jesus says in one form or another comes right out of the Hebrew Scripture. I mean, just lifts it, plops it down. Sometimes he changes the wording, Sometimes he goes almost word for word. And the idea of the meek inheriting the earth is central to a psalm written by David. Psalm 37. I will read you some of the verses and Matt will put them up on the screen. Okay? Matt, this is 1, 7, and 8. But now, David writes to people who are fretting people who are troubled, and he tells them not to fret, not to trouble. Don't get upset over evildoers. Don't be jealous of those who do wrong. Be still before the Lord and wait for him. Verse 8, let go of anger and leave rage behind. Don't get upset. It will only lead to evil. David is talking to these folks who are, well, the best way I could put it, they are, um, they are left out. 
He's talking to a group of people that were in a world where one group seemed to be getting it all, and this other group was getting nothing. Right? In other words, to use more modern language, the rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting poorer, and Jesus, I mean David, in this psalm, if you do the history of the psalm and what people think it was written for, David was writing to those who were poor, getting poorer. They were the ones missing out. Verse 14, he says, The wicked draw their swords and bend their bows. Verse 16, Because better is a little that the righteous have than the overabundant wealth of the wicked. So you get this understanding that he's talking to the not rich, the not the abundance, the ones who are living in a world that are not getting the best, that are not getting the fullest, that are not getting the finest. These are the people that if, if, if there was a pie, they were getting the thinnest slice available. They were people who were picking the crumbs up uh, from the floor while everyone else feasted. They were the marginalized. They were the ones being stepped on. They were the ones, if you remember Hurricane Ike, right? They were the ones who waited in line to get gas, and by the time they got there, the gas was out, right? Those are the people he was talking to. Jim, they were the ones that were in prison, and if there was a jailbreak, they would be trampled by the other prisoners and die rather than go free. I mean, these were people who did not have it going on for them. That's who David was talking to. And he says in verse 11, But the meek, those people, shall inherit or possess the land. So for David, the meek were the, those who were never quite in the loop and those who were overlooked. Now, I think that's what Jesus would have referred to. Jesus was not Christian. He was Jewish. Psalms were books that he would have had memorized. And he would understand the background of David's 37th Psalm. So when he said, blessed are the meek, he had to be, in my opinion, referring back to what David was talking about. And if you're a listener on the Sermon on the Mount, if you're one of the twelve or one of the multitudes, as long as you weren't one of the rich, that would have been good news. Because he is talking to the people who did not have it all together. He was talking to the people that the world said, you're not good enough. And what he promised them is that there's a new world coming. Now, it is important to try to understand what it means to inherit the earth. Remember, and we're going to go over this again with the next beatitude. In Jesus' theology, Jewish theology, if you were seeking justice, you had to receive it in this life. Justice was not something that we say, we say in the in the afterlife, right? In eternity, you'll spend eternity with God. So what you're going through now, you're learning to be with God in eternity, whatever stuff we say. Jew would never say that because, well, take the book of Job, and we're going to do this again next beatitude. Book of Job, Job did not receive justice when he died. Everything was restored when he was still alive. In order for Job to have a happy ending, that's, what ha- that's Jewish understanding of justice. So to say they will inherit the earth, he had to be talking more about now. Right here, right now. 
The question is what he's talking about. Well, for me, I think it goes back to the word blessed. If we understand blessed to mean happy, then this, this beatitude makes as much sense as last one of mourning. How can you be happy and mourning at the same time? You find me someone who is not getting enough, you tell me how happy they are. person who waited in line for gas after Ike and got there and the pump was empty, I don't think Jesus say, yeah, you got to be happy. What Jesus is reminding them, the inheriting the earth, the reminder that even when they are meek, even when the rest of the world says no, even when it doesn't seem to be enough to go around, Jesus is saying, God hasn't forgotten you. Or as I like to say, God is on your side. Because that's what the blessed was. And so he is saying, if you have ever felt left out, marginalized, God hasn't forgotten you. God is on your side. See, and for us, I can't speak for any of you. I can only speak for me. But there are many times when I have felt as if I was somehow missing out. That I didn't get my fair share of the pie. I have friends who ask the question, uh, other, other families have children, why couldn't they? I had uh, one, of college, one of Connor's friends talk to me uh, when he didn't get into the three colleges he had wanted to get into. How come other kids are getting into the college of their choice and I'm not? I have felt when, when appointments came and I didn't get an appointment that I thought I should have, why are that guy getting the appointment and not me? I've had uh, widows say to me, why did my husband have to die and not someone who is bad? Jesus is saying to us, if you've ever felt left out, marginalized, stepped on, like you weren't getting treated fairly, that God is on your side. Anyone ever feel that way, by the way? Okay, good. Now, I um, one time had a conversation with somebody who uh, was struggling with Beatitudes. And this was kind of before I had this understanding, so I didn't have a good answer. Um, she, she was saying, well, she's not meek because uh, she had everything she wanted, right? A good family, a good husband, good job, good insurance, good house, good kids. I mean, her life was, she got the pie. She got the pie plus the ice cream. And um, so she, her, her question was, how is God going to bless her? So now she would ask me, is, does that mean God's not on my side? Because I don't feel like one of those people. And my response is, even if you don't feel left out, even if you don't feel meek, it's still an announcement for you. This is my word. If you are among the unmeek, it's not a word, unmeek is my word, don't look it up, it is up to you or to us to help serve the pie to the meek, to make sure that the marginalized are not left out, to make sure that the new world that God is promising happens right here, right now. So if you're among the not meek, then the announcement for you is that you are to be God's instrument to the meek, the left out, the spiritual losers. 
We are to be on the side of the ones who God blesses. Now, there's different levels of meekness, by the way. All right? Depending who you're talking to. If I'm talking to uh, my bishop, I feel pretty meek. But if I'm talking to someone in uh, at, uh, East Fort Bend Human Needs, it's hard for me to feel meek. It's hard for me to feel left out. If Jim's in the prison doing prison ministry, he, he's going to have a hard time feeling meek because he's not left out. He's got things that they don't. So I think it changes. There are some times where we're the meek and there are other times where we're the unmeek. When we're the meek, we are to be reminded that God is on our side. And when we are the unmeek, we are to be reminded that God is on the side of the meek and that we are to help them and lift the meek and help them get part of the pie, whatever that means. Questions? God, you guys are quiet tonight. Good. Whatever. I don't have to worry about repeating a question. Um, there is a great book. Jim, you need to read this book. Okay? Do you read? Okay. The book is called, you got it, Matt? The Other Wes Moore. You ever hear of that? Phenomenal, phenomenal book. Uh, it is, tell, this book tells a story, I'm, spoiler alert, okay, sorry, read this one, don't read the one lamb, like I told you the first week of this, because that's sacrilegious, um, this one is not, this book tells the stories of two men, both of them coincidentally, and these are true stories, are named Westmore. both grew up in Maryland, both were raised by single mothers. Both had run-ins with police as youngsters, right? But according to the book, that's where the tragedy, I mean, that's where the similarities end. Because one <coughs> Westmore became a graduate of John Hopkins and a Rhodes Scholar. He eventually served as a White House fellow under Condoleezza Rice. The other Westmore was sent to prison, serving a life sentence for involvement in the killing of a police officer. And the book, The Other Westmore, tries to understand why these two men with the same name, very similar backgrounds, had different lives. Here's your spoiler alert. The author concludes that the difference was caused by one thing. Hmm. Wow. It, it depends if you buy genetics over environment. And I believe in, in the course of our behavior, it's more determined by our environment. On, and I think that's what this author would say. Because the one Westmore who went to John Hawkins Road Scholar, worked with Condoleezza Rice, grew up at some point knowing that there were people on his side. The other Westmore saw his father only three times in his entire life. Had no one to support him, to stand with him, to walk with him. The other Westmore, John Hopkins, had family that intervened. Even though he didn't have a dad, his dad died, had family that intervened and helped him through difficult times. The prison Westmore was on his own. Saw his dad three times. The third and final time he saw him, Westmore's father looked up from a drunken stupor and asked, Who are you? That's the difference. So what Jesus was saying, 
If you are meek, if you are marginalized, if you're on the outside looking in, God is on your side. And if you are the unmeek, the people who have the support, the people who have uh, the big piece of the pie, comparatively speaking, then your role is to be on the same side with the people that God is on their side. Because that's the announcement. That was the difference when the West Moors. That was the announcement and the proclamation and the good news. I will not believe any way, shape, or form that Jesus was ever saying, implying, teaching that in order to be blessed, you have to be meek. He was talking to people who were already experiencing it, who were already feeling it. And he said, you, you, don't forget, God is on your side. Okay, Blessed are the meek, for they should inherit the earth. Questions? If not, we're moving to the next one. Comments? I, I think attitude has a lot to do with it, Jim. But I also think attitude is not something many of us can develop ourselves. For example, my life. Dad abandoned me. Didn't end up in prison, as far as I know. Not yet. Uh, but my mom picked up what my dad couldn't or wouldn't, what he chose not to do. So my attitude was given to me because I knew that mom was always going to support me. She may not always take my side as I preach, but she's always going to have my back. She's always going to support me. She's always going to encourage me. And no matter how far I fell, she was always going to be there. I think that's what shapes it. I, I often look at, um, and you work with it all the time, people in prison, why did this guy not go to prison? Why did this guy did? And, and my experience has been those who get out of bad situations because they have somebody, at least one person, who believes in them or who has taught them that they're not a loser. I think we have control over how we respond to situations. I don't think you can simply tell someone, don't worry, be happy, get a better attitude. I think, what, I think the words you tell to help them get a better attitude is, I'm with you. I'm going to walk with you. We're going to do this together. You, you are not alone. There's the difference. Can I use you as an example? May I? Thank you. When her husband died, we sat in the kitchen, right, or whatever room that was, not even sure, dining room, kitchen, whatever it was, and I told her, you're not in this alone. You don't have to do any of it by yourself. You got a church. We're going to walk with you every step that we can, that you let us, because she was being all stubborn and not letting us. I mean, try, am I right or not? Thank you. And for the record, Matt, she said, I am always right. Okay, now, now understand, all right? I do a lot of funerals uh, for people who don't have that support. Because the set of guests calls and want me to do a funeral and, and they don't have church support they don't have the support and a lot of those widow ladies they they never ever stand up and get get over it. never and get over it's the wrong word they never are able to live their life again they're never able to begin a new life there is no new normal i think it's part attitude jim but i think it's an attitude knowing that you're not alone that someone is beside you I think it makes all the difference to me. Judy Murrah, going through leukemia treatment, not leukemia, she has MDS. Don't ask me the difference. Hey, Tom, Judy 
is, is having a hard time. But you know what? You're never going to, and I was doing this before you walked in, so hush up. Judy, well, you never hear her complain, because why? She has people, not just praying for her, people on her, and she knows there are people supporting her. Jill has patients who go to the doctor. They have ALS, um, acute leukemia, or ALL, or AML, AML, ALL. They have one of those, and they go to the doctor by themselves, no one with them. And Jill heart breaks because she doesn't know how they're going to make it. That's, not, that's attitude, but it's attitude given by people because there's somebody saying, one way or another, I'm on your side. Westmore, John Hopkins Westmore, had somebody somewhere along the line saying, you're not a loser, you can get out of this, I am with you, I will walk with you. And the Westmore in prison, no one ever told him that. But next time you go to prison, not you, personally. <laughs> Next time you visit prison and do your ministry, ask him that question. Did you have growing up, when you first started getting in trouble, anyone who said, we can get through this together? And I'll bet you a dollar, 90% of them will say, I never heard those words. Agree or disagree? Agree? Yeah. I mean, I, that's what teachers do a lot of. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you now, not only did I have my mom, I had a phenomenal band teacher in middle school. I had a great band teacher in high school. I had a fantastic high school baseball coach, Jack Kenworthy. And I'll tell you, without them, no telling. Because they whispered in my ear all the time, you're okay, you're going to be okay. So, Questions? comments next blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness this has become my favorite beatitude by the way and matt for the record it's the only time i've said that right matt likes to give me a hard time because on sunday mornings i often say this is my favorite passage <laughs> no no this is, and then he always reminds me on monday i thought that was your favorite passage and this has become my favorite beatitude. And the reason why is because I finally understand it. Well, I didn't get it. I, I didn't understand the metaphor. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Because I didn't understand four things. <laughs> I didn't understand, well, three I'll put hunger and thirst. Didn't understand hunger and thirst. Sure didn't, bless you. Didn't know what righteousness really was. Bless you. And didn't know uh, what it meant. They will be filled. And once I started piecing it together, it was like, woohoo! I get it. And it and it was, and I told Richard today, Burnham, that it was the coolest thing because once everything kind of fell in place. This beatitude is like, I get it, and I understand it. Okay, so we'll start with um, the hunger and thirst. Well, we'll start with righteousness. What is Jesus talking about when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? All right? Now, chances are, what you've heard, what you might be thinking, what may be in your head is something along the lines of self-righteousness, right? Being holy, being set apart, doing all the right things, showing up for Sunday school, coming to church, coming to Bible study, uh, giving money to the poor, um, praying four times a day, whatever it is, right? We often think of righteousness as that. But, we'll get into this a little bit, righteousness, to me, is all about God. And what it means to me is when we hunger and thirst for, uh, God's, the, for God's will to be complete that he has for the world, something like that. 
And what God's desire for the world can be summed up in one Jewish word that is impossible for us to um, translate. It's the word shalom. Shalom is often translated peace. Fine, but it is not a good translation. Peace does not begin to encompass all that the word shalom really means. Shalom is talking more about a wholeness. Shalom is about a a peace, a wholeness, a reconciliation, if you will, in all our relationships. A relationship with one another, relationship with our creation, the earth, relationship with our God, and relationship with ourselves. It's this understanding that our relationships are whole. Shalom is when we are at peace and reconciled with one another, creation, God, and ourselves. Shalom is when everything is in its right place and relationships are whole. And that is an ongoing process. You never, ever. You may have it and you lose it. But it's my understanding when God created the Garden of Eden and that story, God created it with shalom, wholeness. Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship with each other. Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship with the garden itself. But more than that, they were perfect relationship with themselves. There was no shame. There was no fear. There was no guilt. And then they were in perfect relationship with God, who every evening in the cool of the evening, God came down and they sang together, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. Right, Matt? Oldest hymn ever written. Beginning of time. That's shalom. And what this beatitude says is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that. Now, you understand. Sometimes the hunger and thirst is something epic, something global, right? Uh, uh, Anybody here living water? Living Water is great ministry, providing water wells around the world for um, people who don't have clean water. Fantastic ministry, unbelievable organization, right? right? Their guy who started that had a hunger and thirst for the world to be as God intended it to be with everyone with enough clean water to drink that he started this, this ministry of building wells for people. That's global. That's epic, Okay, sometimes um, the hunger and thirst for righteousness is more systematic. Uh, It's more about systems. Eddie is real big into uh, justice in in the way the welfare system works, the way the health care issues are, the way uh, that. That's, That's Eddie's wheelhouse. That's what he's about, right? He's about changing systems to... uh, to, to, to fix the problems and to bring the world into this shalom that God envisioned. And, and Eddie, like most people I don't know, hunger and thirst for that. But then sometimes the hunger and thirsting for righteousness has to do, is very personal. It's relational. Right? If you've ever watched a marriage fall apart, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You hunger and thirst, and as a pastor, I see it way too much. Um, You hunger and thirst for that. You hunger and thirst that that this relationship would somehow heal and be 
whole shalom that that's God's desire for, right? And when you have to hear people who are going through the pain of divorce, the pain of separation, the pain of loneliness, the pain of cancer, whatever, it, and, and that hunger and thirst that this isn't right. This is, and, and you hunger and thirsting when you actually feel it and ache it, and, and, well, and, and that's what, what Jesus is talking about. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't do. Oh, it's also personal. I'm sorry. If you have a personal demon that you struggle with, you know, an addiction, a uh, habit, a sin, a temptation, right? And if you just ache because you keep falling into the same thing every single time, that's hungering and thirsting because you ache to want to be the whole person that God created you to be. Talk to someone in recovery, and generally, that's what begins to drive them towards recovery. That hunger, that thirst to be whole. So, what God is saying to those people, if you have that hunger and thirst for shalom, that the world, that your life, that your family, that your fight, whatever it is, needs to be whole, that he makes the announcement again. Not that you're happy. He's like, happy, I'm so glad you're aching and thirsting. He's reminding you, if you have that, God is on your side. First four are announcements. That's what they are. Notice Jesus doesn't give instructions on what to do if you hunger and thirst, right? He doesn't give you seven steps on how to beat your hunger and your thirst. He doesn't tell you a cute story about hunger and thirst. He doesn't blame you and say you wouldn't be hungry and thirsty if you weren't so lazy. He doesn't just give you information and tell you to go Google uh, what that means. He gives an announcement. That's all he does. If you are hungering and thirsting for the way God created things to be, you will be filled because God is on your side. God hasn't forgotten you. Now, I read a sermon today as I was getting ready for this. And um, made me kind of sad as I thought about the people who were listening to that sermon and how they must have felt when they left church. Because this is what the preacher said. This was his understanding of righteousness. And if I would have been in that service, I would have left depressed. This is what he said, basically. Well, I could have read the whole sermon to you. He believed that righteousness is a lifestyle that distinguishes us as true Christians and invites opposition from the world. He believed that righteousness starts in the heart and changes a person from the inside out and causes us to not only seek God's approval, but to attain God's approval, to please God with the way we live. And then he says, we are righteous when, when we are just like Christ. Now, I got to tell you, the moments that I am just like Christ are few and far between. And when I'm reading this sermon, all I could think about is those, this poor person sitting in the pew whose life right now is falling apart, hearing that and thinking, when they go into their car, do they just want to slit their wrist because it's not possible to be that way? Yes, sir. Christian perfection has nothing to do with not... Uh, the question was, what about Christian perfection that Wesley talked about? Christian perfection had nothing to do with being perfect in the sense that we claim perfect. 
Christian perfection, as Wesley taught it, understood it, as I understand it, and we're asked the question, when you're ordained, are you going on to perfection? And do you believe it is attainable in this life? Right? And you better answer both yes, or else I don't know what happens. Right? Because everybody, yeah, huh, sure, whatever you say, Bishop. Um, But what Wesley meant was perfected in love. That for those moments that you care more about the other than you do yourself. For those moments when you take seriously what Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friend. In those moments, you you have been perfected in love. For that moment. Now the problem that drove Wesley crazy, and because he was, uh, no, he was, he drove himself crazy because he set a standard so high, you know. It, he kept waking up earlier because he believed he had to keep praying more, you know, and because he was failing in his mind, which is just bizarro to me. But, but the problem with Wesley's perfection is once you say I'm there, you're not there anymore. Once you say, hey, I made it, then you've lost it. Because why? All of a sudden, you're thinking about yourself and not the other. Wesley would say, and he never says this, so this is just my interpretation, is one of my favorite passages in Philippians. And yes, Matt, it's one of my favorite. Jill and I had it read at our, at our wedding because my, my feeling is if everybody just followed this thing, man, everybody would have a great marriage. I, I'm serious. Uh, I always, I, my last church, people used to get mad at me because the previous pastor would, would preach sermons, how to be a better husband, how to be a better spouse, how to be a better dad, how to be a better parent, how to be a better child, how to be a better employer, how to be a better employee, all these different things. And, and they would, why, you know, why don't you preach that? So, would, so one day I did. And it was a short sermon. You would have been proud. Because <laughs> basically it was a six-minute sermon Seven-minute sermon said, and I read this passage from Philippians, and there's the gospel. And it's Philippians 2. I wasn't planning to do this, so let me turn to, uh, if I can find it quickly. Uh, Philippians 2. I'm going to read out of the NIV, because that's what my Bible is turned to right now. And it goes like this. Here we go. Philippians 2, verse 3 and following. This is it. You want the secret to life. You want to be a better spouse, better parent, better employer, better employee, better whatever you want to be better at. You want to be a better person. Memorize this. Live it. You'll be fine. Here's what it goes. Ready? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Now, what he really says, common English isn't a great translation on this one. What he really says is, look at the other person as being better than you. Right? It's like what I say, you are the best of the best of the best. And then sometimes I add, can you imagine what your day would be like if you believed that about the other person? That's what Paul is saying here, right? And then he goes on to say, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself uh, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him a name that is above every name, and at that name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every con- tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Almighty. Amen. There's your answer. Sure. In fact, it's part of my sermon Sunday. I mean, because that's what it's about. You want perfect in love? There it is. That's it. Be a better husband, wife, father, mother, whatever you want to be. They never once complained again about that, by the way. Because 
Because see, I can give you seven steps to be a better spouse and you can fulfill them and it's easy, right? But when all you say is this one, do nothing out of selfish, I'm gonna get the exact translation just for us. Which one would it be in? Let's see, let's go to the NRSV. I don't have the NRSV. Okie doke, yes I do. Okay, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That is just darn hard to live. Right? It is imitating Christ, but it is not righteousness. That is self-righteousness. It is how we are called to live, but it's not what Jesus was talking about when he said those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's not saying those who hunger and thirst for this. Because see, once you make it about this, really, I mean, I know, or about self-righteousness, about more prayer, more study, more church, more giving, more blah, 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 blah. Whenever you make it about that, um, what you are doing is you're making it about you and not God. And what Jesus is saying is the righteousness I'm talking about is about God's desire for the world, and that's shalom, that's wholeness, that's peace in all relationships. That's the difference. It's not about you. And I know as Americans, um, living in the 21st century, whatever century we're in, it is, uh, you know, it is all about us, right? We're like middle school kids, right? I tell parents all the time, from the time your kid is six to the time they're about 21, the world revolves around them, all right? So when a, when a family goes through a divorce or a, or a kid's parent dies young, I always talk to the parent. So I remember, here's what that kid's thinking. He won't be able to tell you that, but this is what he's thinking. He caused the divorce. He caused his parent to die. You know why? Because if something bad happens in the world, it's my fault. Something good happens in the world is because of me, because the world revolves around me. So in righteousness, when we make it about us, we just blew it, my opinion. Because it is no longer an announcement. It then becomes a rule. It then becomes a law. And Jesus was talking an announcement. I mean, okay, think about this. Just, I want you to be with me, Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to agree. I just want you to be with me. Jesus is talking to this mishmash of people, right? This group of, like, losers. You know, they're, they're just not the best of the best of the best. They're not the cream of the crop. They're not the ones, right? Okay, so Jesus is talking to them. And, and I want you to imagine for a minute, he says this, okay? I want to know how you feel if he says this. Tell me if you're included. Blessed are you who are morally upright, without guilt, without sin, and are always virtuous. Anybody? See, if Jesus says that's the requirement, it's going to be a very small group. In fact, according to Mother Teresa, she doesn't even make it. You, you, you do know Mother Teresa thought she was like the biggest sinner of all. Mother Teresa said, and I love it, she said, uh, you know, I am so far away from God. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, if Mother Teresa is, where am I on the spectrum, right? And then I realized, then I realized, right? The closer you get to, this is the, this is the odd, this is like perfection, Graham. The closer you get to God, the more you realize how far you are away from God. Because the closer you get to him, then every little thing you do wrong is magnified. When you're way away from God and you just start learning about, you know, I can do almost anything because I don't, well, that's not whatever, right? But then as you go closer and closer to God and understand God more and more and more, then every little thing you do is like huge, which is why Paul could say he was the biggest sinner of all. Plus, Paul was a, like to brag, he had a big ego. He couldn't just be the sinner. He had to be the biggest sinner of all, whatever. I have a Paul issue. Um, which hacks Richard off because he loves Paul. Um, but that's not the gospel. It is God telling the people, <laughs> God is only going to be with you if you're good enough. And that's what the Pharisees were teaching. 
that's the righteousness. Heard another, I read another sermon that said, um, I want to make sure I get this right, that said, um, okay, hold on. Okay, that said, it said this. This is the hardest and most demanding beatitude to fulfill, to achieve, something like that. Okay, now, I want you to be on the Sermon on the Mount again with me. This is when Jesus would be cruel and mean or have a sick sense of humor. Because that's like Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to tell you this beatitude, <laughs> but you ain't going to be able to do it. So good luck. I mean, right? If, if you are morally upright, if you are without sin, if you have no guilt, if you always live virtuous, if you always love like you're supposed to love, if you always do all those things you're supposed to always do, if you're always looking like me, if you're like me, then, then you're blessed. Everyone's going to get up and walk out. Because everybody in that room, except for the Pharisees, would say, well, that ain't me. Jesus is making an announcement. And then he says, you will be satisfied or you will be filled. Now, again, he ain't talking about some future thing, right? Because that would be like Jesus standing. I mean, Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago, give or take. It'd be like Jesus standing up on the, sermon, on, this, on the mountain and say, all right, now, those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be filled. It's going to be several thousand years, so just hang on. You've got to go back to the word blessed. Those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you have that ache, when you have that pain, when you recognize that things aren't the way God intended them to be in the world, in your community, in your church, in your family, in your own life, then God will be on your side. God is with you. You're not alone. That's how you're filled. That's how you're satisfied. Because it goes back to God says, whispers up to you, you're not by yourself, I'm with you. Now, there's a, um, okay, we got time. So you guys got me off. Now we're going to run late. It's not my fault. Um, okay, what I love about this beat, this is the part that, that I just, this is where it became my favorite. Because I want you to notice what the beatitude doesn't say. Okay? Um, let me explain. He doesn't say anything about making, let me, let me, let me, Okay, I'm going to tell a story about a friend, a guy named Brent, good friend of mine. Brent and his wife, uh, we did UM Army together, great guy. Got really involved with living water. I mean, all in. In fact, his daughter's third birthday, no gifts, donations to living water, and they raised enough to build a well from his daughter, and, and they have a picture of the well, her name on it, in their bedroom, because they were going to raise their daughter, that, li- that this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Man, fantastic. Goes to Ecclesia, which is a church I would go to if I wasn't a pastor. Okay? Now, they, wanted, they needed a new couch. Their couch literally broke, and Brent can fix anything, but he couldn't fix the couch. So they went to the store to buy a couch. And Brent was telling me this on our way to um, a work camp. And he said, it's the worst experience because they had just gotten involved in living water. They just saw the statistics. They knew. You know, so they're there to get a couch, right? And, and it's a couch they needed. I mean, you know, we need couches. Uh, you know. and, and so there was this one couch that was on sale that was, was kind of ugly, but it was cheap, right? Then for just a little bit more, they could get this couch. And then the couch he really wanted was one of those leather couches with recliners and cup holders, right? And that's what Brent wanted. But, but they stood there and they struggled with this. I mean, they, I mean, literally, they got almost sick to their stomach, Brent would say, because they wanted that couch, but they knew they could give more money to living water if they bought this ugly couch and not that couch. They ended up making the right decision for them, buying the ugly couch, but God doesn't say, blessed are you because you made the right decision or a good decision. Blessed are you because you 
you, you hungered and you thirst and you felt the tension and you felt the ache and you felt the pain knowing that you were so aware that, that the world wasn't as God wanted it to be, that you were looking for shalom. Even if they would have made the decision to buy that couch, God, that's what he's talking about. Notice what God, what Jesus says. He, Jesus does not, Jesus blesses the absence, not the achievement. Jesus blesses the longing, not the action. He blesses the desire, not the doing. It is not, he, he speaks to the ache and the hunger and the thirst. Even if they would have bought that couch, they had the hunger and the thirst. And Jesus whispered to them, I'm on your side. Blessed are you because you're, 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 you're living in this tension. It's about the hunger and the thirst. He bought the cheap one. Nope, that's not what I said. Did not say empathy is more important than action. What I said was, for this beatitude, the fact that you hungered and thirsted you ate and you, and rather than just go in like I would do, I'm just going to, well, I wouldn't buy it because I don't want a couch recliner and cup holder. I think they're ridiculous, but that's me. If anybody has them, I'm sorry. Um, but that, but I just go in and buy that couch and then move on. So anyway, you know, I give enough money. I tithe. I give money to church. I'm good, right? But because they ate and agonized over this thing, because they knew that the world globally was not how God intended it to be. God says, blessed are you. Had nothing to do with actually buying the couch because if it had to do with buying this couch, then what is it? It's not the gospel. It's works righteousness. And our God, our, my Jesus is a Jesus of grace that makes a proclamation and a pronouncement of the gospel, not works righteousness. I think that's it. We are out of time. As Sean Connery says in the movie The Untouchables, anybody see that? Thus endeth the lesson. Right? Best line in the movie. I'm not going to spoil alert that in case you go rent it. Kevin Costner looks like 15, by the way. Yeah. Questions? Comments? What do you want to know? Ambition. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that's how you live. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. That, Philippians 2, 3 and following, I'm telling you, 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 adopt, you memorize that and you wake up every day and say, that's how I'm going to live. You're going to be a better spouse, parent, grandparent, worker, employee, church member, whatever you want to be better at. That's the secret. That's part of my sermon Sunday, because we're talking about um, ask and you shall seek, knock, and then the golden rule at the bottom, do unto others type thing. So then we're going to go to Philippians, because I believe, and I still got to find someone else who agrees with me, because I really do believe it, but so far (laughs) I haven't found anyone who buys it. Scholarly, I mean. Um, I think because in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? We all know that, the golden rule. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, it's not enough just to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because what, what he says in the Gospel of John is, um, you're supposed to love one another like I loved you which is more than do unto others. It's like the next step. If this is the golden rule, then this is a platinum rule, right? I mean, think about it, right? So my theory is, I just want to find one scholar who agrees so I can use it. Um, my theory is that, uh, that, that Jesus watered down a little bit because of the mishmash crowd. But when he had the disciples alone, he said, look, for the crowd, if they just do that, that'll be great. But for you who call yourselves followers of me, this is the standard. But I can't find anyone that agrees with me, so.
Till I do, I can't use it. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. There's there's a possibility he really didn't write that, but. Yeah. I think it fits. Yeah, I mean, right? Uh, Bishop Job, Reuben, Job, wrote that book, Three Simple Rules. I think it fits with Philippians. You live those rules, you're fine. Do, do all the good you can. Stay away from all the evil you can. Participate in the means of grace. Or what he said, stay in love with God, right? Stay in love with God. So, questions, comments? Peace be with you. We'll see you next week or Sunday. <laughs>